Welcome to Unfiltered, our newest program in our weekly Fixing Healthcare podcast series. Joining us today is Dr. Jonathan Fisher, a cardiologist and global expert in physician burnout. For 25 minutes, he and Robbie will engage in unscripted and hard-hitting conversation about art, entertainment, human emotions, and much more. As nationally recognized physician leaders and healthcare policy experts, they'll apply the lessons they extract to medical practice. I'll then pose a question for the two of them as the patient based on what I've heard. Robbie, why don't you kick it off? Hi, Jonathan. Welcome to Unfiltered. Thanks, Robbie. I'm really happy to be here today. I'd like to talk with you about a topic that's bothered me for years, and that's our inability as a medical profession to discuss or even accept death as part of life. Let me begin by asking you, why do you believe it's so hard for physicians? I think it's hard for humans, uh, and I see physicians as deeply human, though uh, sometimes the humanity is lost after years of training. Uh, as far as why it's hard for physicians specifically, our medical training teaches us that our goal should be to prolong life at all costs, and that death is viewed as a failure, a personal failure and a failure of our team. How do you think that we can build that conversation into dialogue with patients without exceeding the anxiety and discomfort that physicians in general tend to shy away from? I think you hit on some of the answer right as you posed it. You acknowledge that there is anxiety about this, and there has been, as long as we have human history and human literature, humans have really only obsessed about a few things, and that's uh, sex, success, and death. Uh, and death is inevitable. And so I think we have to make it part of the early conversation in medical training. That's going to make it a lot easier. It's much harder to take a physician who's been seasoned for 20 or 30 years, has their views set on life and death, and then encourage them to have a sensitive conversation in a new way that's informed by the trauma of facing death of families. And there are many ways to do that. I think the first way is to bring the humanities back into medicine uh, altogether. And that means ask physicians what their own experiences were with death and with dying. I can tell you personally, Robbie, that during my own medical training, my sister died of a brain tumor. And I felt very much alone because it wasn't part of normal conversation at the water cooler or during rounds to ask even how are you doing, let alone are any of your family members sick or dying? And so I've certainly done a lot of reading and thinking about how I personally can get more comfortable with the concept of death so that I can help usher it in if the time is coming for my patients, uh, let alone helping my colleagues. You know, I'm sorry to hear about your sister. How did you get help during that time period? I kind of did it myself. A lot of doctors in particular, we have these egos that say, if we need to ask for help, there's something wrong with us. We have to tough it out. And that I learned that from my surgical rotations, not to pick on surgeons, but uh, it really came from there. And so I, I personally, it was a combination of diving into philosophy, the study of Stoic philosophy in particular, a bit of wisdom traditions and religions, and we can dive in. The Buddhist tradition in particular has a lot to say about death and dying. They have books on the subject. 
And then some of it was a personal psychology, looking at my own relationship with death. What was I really afraid of? Uh, and ultimately it was the, it was the pain of loss, the pain of loss of a relationship, which I later realized the pain of loss of my own relationship with my sister was magnified by the fact that I hadn't fully developed that relationship. There were too many excuses in life. She had her life and her career. I had my own busyness and my residency training and life was so out of balance that there wasn't enough time to be the brother and sister that I really would have wanted. So uh, those are some of the ways. And I also uh, went to therapy at the time and I talked to a therapist for a good year about what I was so uh, what I was struggling with with death and I surrounded myself by people who loved me which at the end of the day was the most important thing to help me through it Robbie teach me a little bit about Buddhism says about death and what you've taken from your study of it so there are a couple of core principles in Buddhism and one of them is this idea of non-attachment which means that all human suffering whenever we're feeling sad or afraid or anxious if we look deeply it's because we're resisting something that is true or we're clinging on to something that we'd rather not lose whether it's a possession or a person or uh, some aspect of success in our life and so this idea that we should examine all of our attachments and learn to hold our wants and desires and cravings more lightly which goes against our evolutionary pull, which is, if I love you, Robbie, I don't want to lose you. And so I have to practice almost using visualization at times. What would it be like if you were gone? And doing the same practice on myself. There's a practice in Buddhism, also in Hinduism, also in Stoicism. Uh, they take different forms. For in yoga, for example, at the end of every yoga practice where I, I began to practice years ago, as I was working through this grieving process, there's a pose that's called Shavasana, which is translated as the corpse pose. And you'd think that is just sadistic. It's sick. After doing an hour of exercise, you're going to lie down and pretend that you're a dead body. And that's literally what the practice is. Now, I'm sure some people go to the gym and they just do that pose and see it as a moment to reflect and maybe think about their shopping list, but I took it as a time to meditate on what will it be like at the moment of my death when I am cut off from all stimulation, from all relationships, uh, and there's a fear that one has to be with in those moments to do that contemplation of being in your own grave. It sounds horrible, but I can tell you the more I did this practice, this is essentially a form of exposure therapy that any psychologist does when you have any anxiety. If you're afraid of something, we tend to avoid it. Well, this is the problem in medicine among doctors. We're really afraid of death. We see it as a failure. And it's in that avoidance of the thing that we fear that makes it worse. And so by doing a practice like Shavasana in yoga or visualizing the rotting, decaying flesh of our own body, which sounds horrible, by doing that, we're using an approach towards the thing that we're afraid of, which paradoxically lessens its hold on us. And as I mentioned, the Stoics have very similar practices. I remember a quote from Ernest Hemingway that life really begins by confronting death or not confronting the, the concept of it, but actually living in a way to have it in front of you, an existential view of the world. And I wonder whether... Some of the issue is death and how much of it is just 
older age. Do you have a sense of where the problem begins? Is death for a young patient much worse than for an older person? How do you compare these two extremes of life? Well, it's such a great question. And, you know, my own personal experience is whenever I have a patient, and I, I hesitate to even acknowledge this, but I know I'm not alone, that if I have a patient who's young, who is dying unexpectedly, uh, it emotionally is so much more heartbreaking than a 90-year-old who I feel has lived a good life. In a sense, I'm make, am I making a moral or an ethical decision about the value of the person's life? Not necessarily. Can I relate more closely to somebody who's closer in my age? Possibly. Um, so I think, Robbie, there are two aspects uh, that are very much related. One is loss of function. So I see a movement right now. It's on Instagram. There's health influencers. And there's such a, long, a strong focus on longevity, uh, what we talk, call the lifespan. And I'm happy to report now that there's more of a shift towards this idea of health span, which is not just living long for its own sake, but staying very healthy through the, through the aging years. So to answer your question, it's both a loss of function. I can't ski anymore. I can't run anymore. I can't bike anymore. Eventually, I'm going to lose my eyesight and I can't paint anymore. Um, and so it's, it's a loss of ability to do the things that we once loved that causes the aging process to be so, so painful, not to mention the physical pain that comes along with it. And we can talk today or another time about how interwoven the aspect of avoiding pain is with this fear of death. And then there's the, the issue of death itself, the finality of death, which is different than the aging process, the uncertainty of death, which is much more uh, profound than the uncertainty of the aging process. We've all talked to people who are getting older. We hear stories all the time, but no one listening to this has ever spoken to somebody, or at least that they can demonstrate to us, um, to know exactly what it's like after we die. And I think that's what makes death such a, a, a topic to, that we avoid. I think that's fascinating. I hadn't thought about really the uncertainty of death. I thought about it as the end of life, not the beginning of the sense of what comes next. But I recently heard about a woman with recurrent cancer, the head and neck. The cancer had invaded her carotid artery, which as you know, is the main blood vessel to the brain. And it caused a hole in the blood vessel. And it required 16 units of blood to keep her alive, a major procedure to stop the hemorrhage her chances of ever living a reasonable life, even going home, was essentially zero. And yet no one along the way could say no. Where does our end-of-life treatment be torture versus medical care? Mm. That's such a harrowing story. It's, it's just it's heartbreaking to hear that, not just what she is going through, uh, because those that are giving her care are not comfortable with their own views on death, um, but what her whole family has to put her through because no one has given them permission to say it's okay to stop. Not only is it okay to stop this treatment, which is turning into a form of torture, but it's the right thing to do to stop. And I think in order to do that, Robbie, we have to introduce conversations around ethics, morality, life, death, dying, and the existential crisis that it is to be human into our medical training. Without those conversations, 
physicians, surgeons are just not comfortable saying no, saying I'm done, I can't do anymore. Getting back to this idea of it being a failure. So the beginning of the solution here is to stop defining death uh, and stopping medical care as a failure and to start viewing the dying process as part of the living process. The moment we're born in a view, we're dying, not in a depressed way of looking at it, but in a realistic way. No one has, has discovered the secret to immortality yet. And so I'm very hopeful that with a few simple conversations with physicians, physician groups, um, approaching them where they are. Some physicians, and I can tell you this, are burning out, not only because of the moral injury of being forced to do things that they wouldn't want to do or not being able to help people in ways that they want to, but some of the burnout comes because of unresolved grief of having to watch people die. I spoke with Stephen Ciziak, the chief medical officer at Cooper University in New Jersey. And at the height of COVID, he said that in one afternoon, he watched with his team, four patients die of COVID. He said that not in a 30 year career had he ever had that before, and he was never trained for it. And this is a highly regarded intensivist. So I really think there's a big piece missing from our training. It's not that complicated, but it does take uh, some sensitive souls uh, who are interested in these things to speak not only about our fears of death, the uncertainty of death, but there are specific ways, Robbie, to become more skillful at being with dying. When I had this conversation with a friend of mine, she suggested the idea of a misery scale. We calculate not just the good we're doing for patients, but the pain we're inflicting by a tube through the uh, throat into the lung, by poking needles into people's body, uh, by causing them pain, by forcing them to do the things we know are necessary to heal, but inflict discomfort. And in some way, by measuring that, we might get a better balanced view of the, as I say, the negative we inflict against the positive that theoretically we're providing. Any thoughts about a misery scale? I think it's uh, a fantastic idea. You, you end up getting more uh, of what you measure uh, or less of what you measure, uh, but just bringing it into the consciousness. And just to lighten the conversation a little bit, I can tell you that I've, I've learned about a parallel scale that's used in the online travel industry. And there's a site that I believe is called Hipmunk. And what Hipmunk did is they realized that by adding a single measure, they were able to enhance the purchasing experience of all their customers. And that measure was the, the agony scale of having to buy tickets through certain outlets. Uh, so it was the same kind of a rating that shifted the conversation. In terms of getting back to the healthcare space, I think it's very much part of each conversation I have with my patients. When I ask them, do they want their life to be prolonged with CPR, intubation, et cetera, uh, having a balanced conversation. Um, I've heard some physicians use scare tactics saying, do you want us to break your ribs using CPR? Um, on the other hand, there it can be traumatic and violent to have CPR done. So I think bringing attention to the negative aspects can be the beginning of how we can counterbalance our society's predominant view that life should be extended at all costs. I'm sure some listeners think we're having a very detached philosophical discussion right now, 
but this is what doctors confront every single day and where I think the voice of the patient is going to be so powerful. Let me shift a small bit and ask you about dementia and about the fact that you can live 10, 15, 20 years. Uh, my grandmother did that with dementia that came on early in her life and she lived for a long, long time, never knowing where she was, who the people around her were. From a medical perspective, what does it mean to be human? Hmm. It's a, it's a profound question. Uh, and I don't think that anyone has the right answer, but from a, a medical perspective and from my own personal perspective, uh, to be human is to have a, a sense of your own humanity, to have an awareness uh, that you are a unique individual, that you have unique desires, wants, needs, and fears. Uh, certainly you can say that a human is anyone with a body that is alive. Um, however, we have definitions for brain death when people's bodies are alive and the brains aren't functioning. It's such a tricky and, and difficult situation when dementia sets in because what's being lost is the core element of our humanity, which is our identity. And that I think is what's so terrifying for me in particular. I watched my grandmother uh, with de Alzheimer's dementia uh, come in and out of our home for many years. And then I watched my own mother who over the last few years of her life struggled with dementia. This was a, a brilliant woman who was trained as a nuclear physicist, um, who showed some signs that her mind wasn't was it what it had been before. Had she lost her humanity? No. But I think this is the core reason that it's such a, a fearful prospect to lose our ability to think clearly, to identify our own desires, and to act as an autonomous being. So let's shift into the media and a show that just finished its first season. It's called The Last of Us. Are there any listeners who may not have had a chance to view it, I recommend it very highly. It talks about a post-apocalyptic world, a world that has been infected by a fungus. And it's a world where fear rules Inhumanity abounds, and yet love blossoms. I don't know if you've seen the show or played the video game on which the story is based, but if you have either, I welcome your thoughts because I'm struck by how much love was in this TV series, granted it's a TV series, and often how little I see in some of the medical care that's provided as I say, particularly at these end-of-life moments or in caring for individuals with this type of lost mental function. Any mm. thoughts about the season? Yeah, I, I normally avoid zombie movies like The Plague. I, <laughs> I see enough death and dying uh, and exposed to these things in my regular work where I normally wouldn't watch it. But this was a particular show that I couldn't turn away from. I watched the entire HBO series and I was so fascinated by it, Robbie, that I looked at the origin story of it and it was from 2013. If you were to watch this story, and I, I definitely agree with you that people should take a listen if they want to think about death and dying and what it means to be fully alive. The original story was 2013, way before COVID happened. And yet the conflicts that arise uh, sort of presaged some of what we saw in COVID. 
the reason that I found the show interesting and then I went on to play the video game in order to experience closer to a first hand what it would be like to make these decisions when we are faced with the imminent threat of our own infection and uh, demise. And what I found so interesting is just what you said is the title is called The Last of Us. And on the face of it, you'd think that it means the last of us human beings. It's us against them, the, those humans who are infected by this fungus, which eventually takes over all brain function and leads the infected individual to then become a parasite on other living humans. What I really came to see is that The Last of Us is about identity and about tribalism. Because as the show moves on, the conflicts are less about humans and the infected and more about the conflicts between humans themselves when resources became short. So I, th I found that very interesting, Robbie. Um, and there was this looming and imminent fear of death and infection all around. And what is it like to live amidst fear? How do we balance fears of death and a disability and try to live in those moments. You were alluding to, to finding love in this world. What were you referring to there? Well, for again, for people who have had the chance to see it or play the game, you have the love between Joel and Ellie, Joel being the older gentleman who takes responsibility for Ellie. It's a um, brother, sister, parent, child type of love. Uh, you have episode three, which is one of the most moving ones that I've ever seen in my life, which is the relationship between two men. Uh, you have others that are going to happen between men and women. Uh, all these bonds that are, I will say, pure, that it's not the day-to-day -day experiences that sometimes relationships have that can become transactional. These are ones that are truly transformative. The people in it become better as a consequence of that. And to me, that's the ultimate definition of love, whether you're talking about between two adults or you're talking about an adult and a child or whatever the relationship may be. If it's positive, it makes all people better. Mm. And that's... That's what I saw in episode after episode, not because the director made it happen out of context, because it made sense in this world, a world that was apocalyptic. Hmm. Robbie, I had a, a similar reaction there. And what I was studying for really for my own practical uh, living, because this is something that I face having struggled with anxiety which as, is the fear of bad things happening, which I often can't explain. And I know a lot of people struggle with that. This show is a lot about how can you live with anxiety and can you even find joy or go beyond joy and find that deep connection uh, when there are threats that are real and imagined. And what I particularly was struck by Robbie was in that third episode with uh, Bill and Frank and their story uh, played uh, just so beautifully. Um, was the, the, the fence that they built around their, their neighborhood. And there were issues about the infected attacking the fence and are people gonna cut through the fence? And um, one of them spends so much time and attention with surveillance cameras and keeping an eye on the fence and being ready for attacks at all, the, at, at all times when, where the other, and I think it was Frank, who really realized that in order to develop a loving 
relationship and experience these deep moments of connection, he had to let his eyes off the fence for just a moment in order to grow strawberries and enjoy the taste of strawberries, to, to cook a delicious meal and to savor each bite and to, to taste each drop of wine and to share that moment together. And there was this dynamic conflict between the fear of the external world and this desire to find just this moment together and what makes life essentially beautiful, which was music in, in their relationship, literal music. There, there were songs, there was artwork, there was food, there were smells. And so I'm, I'm wondering, did that come up for you, that theme of fear, uh, especially in light of COVID and all that we've seen through the pandemic, about how we maintain lives that are rich and full and even joyful? Uh, when there are plenty of things to be concerned about? I don't know if it came up in exactly the way you're describing, but I was just getting struck by how powerful these relationships were, how beautiful, how intense they were with almost nothing. I mean, this world is being destroyed around them. There's danger everywhere you turn. And yet, what blossoms? It's like a beautiful flower growing in a rainstorm in a desert when it blooms in a way that in your normal garden, you don't see anything like it. And again, I take a lot of these things back into medicine. And I'm thinking back to the physician in the old days in a small town, maybe like your dad, who knows everyone, who has relationships with everyone, this is not providing care to earn a living. This is not transactional. This is very personal, human to human. And again, my sense of today, and you're a world's expert on burnout, is that that relationship has been lost. Some of it's the computers, some of it the time, some of it the insurers, but there's just something about medicine today that's less fulfilling that I think comes down to that we've lost this relationship, one that was the center for medicine in the past. And there's something about society, about our lives that has taken it away. And if we can't put it back in, and to me, these people under the worst of circumstances have figured out how to do that. Why can't we do that today? I'm 100% with you. I, 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 I hear the cry for connection and relationship. I'm hearing it really around the world right now. And I have to say that this, is, this has really only become loud in the last, I would say, decade or two. We're seeing uh, books by our Surgeon General on the dangers of loneliness and the power of connection. There's a book on compassionomics, where it's making the business case of compa for compassion and relationships. How pathetic is that, that we have to have an argument made to us that we that compassion and connection and relationships and friendships are important. Um, in, our, in our world, there is a deficiency of friendships, more so among men than women. So if you want to look at groups within groups, men are conditioned to be tough and to go it alone. I think women are more often conditioned that it's okay to have these deep, long lasting relationships where we get beneath the surface. And so Robbie, to kind of take it into a, a slightly more positive place for me, and this is where my mind goes, 
I absolutely agree that it, without relationship, without connection, without a connection between us, not only in the people who are in our community and our friends, but also in future generations, a sense of our own legacy and a connection with our past, this is why we are feeling a, a profound sense of disconnection. Some people say that disconnection, there are books written about it, is the source of many addictions. Uh, people are really just missing that connection. Uh, some people find that healing doesn't happen as well when there's not deep connection between doctors and patients. There's a lot of evidence for that. And so you're on to something so powerful here. And what gives me hope is the fact that we humans, once we identify something that's important to us, and once we can agree amongst ourselves that it's important, we can achieve it. And so can it, do you think it's possible that we can recenter that vital uh, role that connection plays in health and healing between doctors, patients, doctors and doctors, doctors and uh, leaders? And, uh, and on a broader sense, this plays out on the political scale. Uh, that's a whole other conversation. But I think that once we decide this is important for our health and our well-being as a society, we can move in that direction. I'm very hopeful that way. Don't take my musings as being negative. I actually think it's quite positive and optimistic because if the problems of today were outside our control, were simply unsolvable, I'd feel depressed about the future. But what strikes me is that there is so much that we can do inside the profession, inside our society, inside our community. And I guess to me, I've been thinking about this and this conversation has really helped me to understand how possible that is. And I'll say, going back to this TV show, The Last of Us, if it can happen in the midst of a fungal pandemic, hmm. with people on the verge of starvation, how much easier should it be for us in American society today? Hmm. Beautiful. Um, and I know you to be an eternal optimist. So <laughs> I guess it's more in my own mind uh, there. I probably am balancing this this uh, optimism with with some pessimism, with some fear, uh, especially when we see events like shootings in schools and things like this um, that really bring us down, uh, looking for for glimmers of hope here. And so uh, I, I think that the work that we have to do is how do we create these connections with people that we view as different from us and that's why that third episode was so special um is that you know bill wasn't even comfortable with who he was he was he hadn't fully expressed his own identity as a grown man and it was only when frank came to his house in his neighborhood that frank helped him discover who he was and who he longed to be and as they developed uh, that identity together, their their relationship grew uh, amidst the fears of the world. At the same time, in that same episode, when uh, Tess and Joel came to visit them, uh, and these were people who were running away from the from the fungus, there are these moments there of distrust. As soon as the visitors come, there are these side-eyed views. Can I trust this person? And that's the first question before we can have these connections that you and I are both speaking about that are healing and nurturing, I think we need to look at where trust is built. And this whole process that we so often do as humans is we make other people into the other. 
And we immediately, we're wired this way, that if I see someone on the street, whether it's skin color, gender, sexual identity, religion, if I can identify something different about them, my mind, before I have a chance, develops a bias against this person if they are not like me. And the only hope, this is my belief, and I'm curious what you think, the only hope to develop that connection that's going to bring us together, these broader and broader circles of connection, is to become aware that we have these tendencies to make others out of others. And that the last of us, it's really only last of us if we define, define us extremely narrowly, people who look like us. But if we can sort of broaden who the group is, that we're, which eventually the group of all humanity, is there some hope there that we can find strength in that in that community? In the long run, I concur that the broad humanity is essential. I think I'm starting in a much smaller world. And again, I'm bringing it through the lens of medicine that we learn repression and denial in medical school. It's intrinsic in the training of doctors. It's the way we deal with death. It's the way we deal with hard conversations. It's the way we deal with the fact of it's really I'll say abnormal to take a knife and cut someone's abdomen open or to open the crack the bone in the chest and massage the heart. These are not normal things, and we approach it in a way of repression and denial. I think that's left over from the last century when there was so much, or maybe century before that, so little we could do as clinicians. You would think that today, with all we can accomplish, this would be the golden era of medicine, of healthcare professionals. We'd be basking in glory. And yet I think that that repression and denial has just not let us confront what's around us all the time, whether it is aging, whether it is dementia, whether it is uh, death itself. I think these are the issues that are there. You're raising another really important one, which is our implicit biases and the ways that we end up mistreating other human beings, not because we want to, not consciously, but because of this repression and denial. I think some of these will be great topics for our next unfiltered episode. Let's turn to Jeremy to get his question for the two of us. You both as physicians have dealt much more with end-of-life care scenarios than I have, even though I've had numerous family members go through end-of-life care due to old age or terminal cancer over the last few years. I'm genuinely curious that when it comes to end-of-life care scenarios, do you believe patients who have a strong faith, either through Christianity, Judaism, Islam, Buddhism, etc., and thus believe in either an afterlife, next life, etc., have less despair and depression in end-of-life care scenarios, and are they perhaps more willing to accept that they're about to face death and thus, in their minds, a new form of spiritual life? Uh, do patients and their family members handle end-of-life care scenarios differently when they have a faith and believe in an afterlife versus patients and family members who have no faith and believe death is final and there is no afterlife? I think it's a great question, and it relates directly to how we face death and uh, resources that we have that help us either face death or cause us to run from it. And one of those resources is spirituality. Um, you use the example of, you know, end of life and in the hospital, and I think we can consider this broadly. Anybody who's listening right now, consider not, let's not talk about religion, because religion 
has to do with specific scriptures and specific rules and specific regulations. But I think what you may be hitting at is this aspect of religion, which has to do what we'll call spirituality, which is this concept of are we connected with something bigger than ourself? Do we have a broader sense of the purpose and meaning in our life? Are we connected to something after we are gone from this earth? And one example of that that you gave is that there may be an afterlife where we continue to live. And what we know is that people who have those certain types of faiths uh, can weather storms more easily than people who may or may not have that sort of a faith. We're talking about people who are either religious or atheists or agnostics. On the flip side, somebody who is an atheist or an agnostic might not have the comfort of believing in an afterlife after death happens, but they may have a different type of a comfort, a comfort that they've developed in facing the unknown and the uncertainty without having that kind of a, a belief anchor to hold on to. There, there is something that can be comforting about entering into the true unknown without having a pre-existing belief. But it's such, a, such an interesting question, Jeremy. Like Jonathan, I have seen people with deep faith be able to approach the fear of death, the reality of death, the pain of death in a very positive way. They see death as well, what happens after one dies, after one's heart and brain at least stop, as being a continuation of the positive that they've lived throughout their life. And I've also seen individuals without that belief who have also been able, I'll say in a personally intellectual way, to face the reality that at least so far, our organs, our hearts, our livers, our kidneys will give out at some point and that the end will come. I think people who have a religion often worry about whether their relationship with God has been good enough to give them what they desire in an afterlife. I've seen a lot of people who have the intellectual capacity to worry about whether the life they've lived in terms of the people around them has been good enough to have the memory that persists. But I think despite the advances, the tremendous advances in science, the tremendous advances in knowledge, death remains an unknown. No one can be certain that is there and as a consequence of that, I think we're still struggling to figure out how to approach it, how to think about it. And again, to me, the optimism is I'm convinced that if we can face the truth directly, if we can have conversations with others struggling around it, if we can bring in experts whether it's in the ethical world or is in the psychological mental health world, if we can have those conversations and be willing to talk about the fears that we have to the point Jonathan made earlier, what is it that we fear? Is it that we'll no longer be there? Is that, that we're going to miss out? Is it going to be that we will be forgotten? Is it just the fact that we will have nothing more or is it 
that we're going to face a judgment day, talking about those fears, resolving those fears, I believe can be positive. I think that the idea of repression and denial is negative, even when it's an effective defense mechanism to allow us to get by. I don't think that's as good as being able to thrive. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and we'll tell your friends and colleagues about it. Please follow Fixing Healthcare on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or your favorite podcast app. If you like the show, please rate it five stars and leave a review. If you want more information on healthcare topics, you can visit Robert Pearl's website, robertpearlmd.com, and visit our website at fixinghealthcarepodcast.com. Follow us on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter at Fixing HC Podcast. Thank you for listening to Fixing Healthcare's newest series, Unfiltered, with Dr. Robert Pearl, Jeremy Corr, and Dr. Jonathan Fisher. Have a great day.